This goes to the sort of a, an, an interesting phenomenon in luxury. It's like we're afraid to question the price. As though we question the price, people are going to be like, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't spend this amount. And we have this sort of like tiptoeing around the discussion of price and cost and, and things like that. And this discussion, this transparency around value is very threatening for a lot of people because everyone's afraid that suddenly the world will wake up and realize that spending all this money on watches is insane. But I don't think that's going to mean we're going to stop doing it because these things bring us joy and they actually are quite expensive to make. This week, Silva is back and joins in the judgment on the Rolex Daytona. David weighs up the fight between lampposts and ceramic watches. We ask if you can protest with birthday cake. And at some point, we review the latest from Omega, Raymond Vile, Carl F. Bickerer and Hamilton. Enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly, the antidote to watch podcasts and obviously a blog to watch the antidote to all those other watch websites that are at the bottom of the page after the article go. By the way, you can buy this from us. Already, Ariel has had a rant off mic, so we're going to give the first rant of the day to Ariel. But <laughs> before we hear from Ariel and we hear from David, I have one question for other guests. I deliberately got a guest on who is French, current country world champions at football in the hope that I have managed to find a guest that is both qualified to speak about watches and also a football fan after last week's debacle. So all the way from sunny France or dark France, because it's whatever time in the morning that we're recording this. Sylvain. Good morning. Are you a football fan? Can I rely on you? No, not that much. I'm not much of a football fan. No, 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 Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is ridiculous. Okay, okay, I'm making an appeal then. Anybody that wants to come on the show next week, anybody, anybody listening who can both speak about watches and football, tap me up at Rick TikTok or podcast at a blog to watch.com and you can come on the show to speak about football because Sylvain is... Hey, all... at least we know how the game is played a little bit. <laughs> this is true. Sylvain, have you actually been watching any of the World Cup? No, I haven't. I don't want to disappoint you, but I mean, I don't even, I don't even have a TV, you know? <laughs> okay, so we have... Savan, who's living in a log cabin in the French stroke Swiss wilderness somewhere and all he's got is a phone connection for doing this podcast and the rest of the world <laughs> is dead to him. No, but it makes sense what he says. He's he's watching a clock. That's what he stares at. He's designing watches. There's nothing better than just staring at a giant clock operating rhythmically, right? TV is just a distraction. You need to really focus on the world of horology. Yeah. I mean, they have a wee clock at the bottom left-hand side or the top left-hand side of the football match. You could just sit and stare at that he needs clock and maybe work. pick up some football stuff. Clockwork. <laughs> maybe if Good all stuff. the guys on the field were assembling a giant clock, it'd be more interesting. <laughs> right, Ariel, let's get stuck in. Uh, David, hope you're well, by the way. Give us your rant. What's oh, you're ready for you this it. Week? Yeah, go on. Let's, let's open with a good one. We're asking for it. I have been spending <laughs> a lot of time uh, doing an analysis around mo modern watch marketing practices. And, and I'm seeing this interesting issue where product releases are now substituting for what used to be advertising campaigns. Product releases aren't just product releases. They're also these like messaging tools like to substitute for advertising or something else. And so we're seeing products in places where they don't belong. And one of the manifestations of it, one of the sort of niche ones, is new products going directly 
to auction. I think that when you're an auction house and you're trying to get a brand to agree to this, you're trying to sell them on the marketing opportunity. Oh, but wouldn't it be amazing if your watch didn't go for the retail price, but some some higher amount? Now, this is horrible for consumers, but they're selling brands on the marketing value of it. Of course, the auction house is the yeah. one making the money, not the brand. They're not making all this extra amount of money, maybe a little bit, but it's really the auction house who's standing the gain. Consumers hate it. I think it completely goes against the point of auction auctions to have them be brand new watches. I think those need to go to the market at a, at a at a retail price. But that's just sort of one of the manifestations that that watch releases are taking that is sort of isn't really about watch releases, but sort of the marketing thing. And so I get irritated when new watches go to auction. It, it bypasses the traditional market. It sort of seems like a scheme and, and it's something to grind my gears about. Probably the best example of this recently is your favorite new brand, the Ingenux or whatever it's called, the G Genius Genta ripoff Nautilus that they decided that they would sell one. Wait, wait, wait. My online. brand? Wait, what are we talking about? <laughs> well, <here? laughs> I didn't even bring it up last time. I, I, I think you're becoming associated with this brand. I think it's, I think it's okay. Okay, I think let's, it's okay let's not go there. For, okay. for... <laughs> I agree with you. It is just another sign of. It's a bit like a band. The drummer always wants to be the lead guitarist. The lead guitarist always wants to be the singer. The singer always wants to be the keyboard player. Everybody always wants to be the thing that they're actually not. And this is another one of these in the watch industry. We are media, we stay media, but auction houses are now becoming author effectively authorised dealers. Right? While everybody else is trying to swap places and make money doing the thing that other people are already set up to do and more experts on. Sylvan, have you ever bought anything from an auction house? No, I did not buy anything from an auction house. And that's a very personal opinion. I don't like to fight over things. I'd rather find something that will become worth fighting later. But for that, you have to to fall in love with things considered ugly at the moment. But (laughs) I I join you guys on, on, on that concern. I think it's exceptionally bad for a brand to go straight to auction because you basically tell your clients, I let you guys fight for it. And that's not a good quality of service. I understand highly educated collectors that go in auction houses to purchase the one and only remaining example of that super rare watch that was produced 50 years ago. I completely get it because it translates, in my opinion, more to art and and unique pieces. But as a company, when you produce something, whether it is uh, 50 pieces, 1,000, 10,000 pieces, uh, going through an auction house has no additional value except maybe displaying your true colors in the wrong sense of it, uh, saying you're just in the game for the Mm. money grab and then the hype. So I see this as a very short-term strategy that will damage your brand in in a year or the second year after. Yeah. David, you... Good morning, David, by the way. Good morning. (laughs) You have written an article about five ways the Rolex Daytona is better and worse That's true. watch than you might expect. Now, obviously, the Daytona was probably the watch that led the charge. I don't know how many years ago it would be now, six, seven, eight years ago, in the idea that modern, mass-produced, industrially-produced watches were the sort of thing that was worth auctioning 
and had additional value. Combining both the auction chat and your review of the Roex Daytona, where do you sit in the argument about auction houses, auctioning new stuff, and, and the Daytona's role in popularising that? I don't think the Daytona has a role in anything. It's just a watch. It's it's an idle object. It's it's <laughs> what what we make of it. The whole thing is just just added. It's just psychology, uh, which is you know which has its own complexities, of course. But at the same time, I think it's true that you know we should just look at these things as watches that are bought and sold for retail. Look at how much a brand wants for it. And by the way, Rolex has been raising its prices like crazy, big time. About fifty percent increase on the Daytona since its launch in in twenty sixteen in six years. You know so. It's not like these are cheap watches anymore. They've never been. But now I think, uh, honestly, I, I look at this watch for $15,000 and I think that's that's actually an ambitious ask if you look at what you're getting for your money. Sure, it's very well built. It's it's robust. But, you know, a lot of watches are robust for two grand, right? So it's not like, oh, it's the end of the world. We had to, like, ask for 15K to, to make a watch this well. As far as auction houses are concerned, as I said last week, I really enjoy going on to Chrono 24 and finding something cool. And the only place where I see a role for auction auction houses is that sometimes you can find cool things in the catalog that somebody just submitted for auction that you wouldn't have come across otherwise. You've very much got two kind of strands of auction house now. The kind of small auction house that just happens to have the occasional, you know, watch day or it's watches and jewellery and you might find a bargain and it's fairly local to you. And then the big boys who are just big marketing organisations and tend, you know, they're putting together a catalog, they might be spending years Hmm. doing it. It's not the kind of thing you would see on the telly, if you like. Someone comes along, they found something in a drawer, they don't really know what it's worth, they can't be bothered doing the research, they take it to the local auction mm. house and you know they end up auctioning a, a rare you know, Speedmaster or, or Rolex of some description. I think it's okay. I think it's appropriate to say, Ariel, your case has been heard and we approve of your argument that auction houses are at it in general. But I look forward to reading your article. You, you're preparing an article on this topic? I, I'm preparing a few pieces of content on the larger analysis about some of these watch marketing practices and how watch releases are being used as this. I have already spoken often about this practice. It doesn't happen that often. I mean, look, there's two flavors of it. One is retail watches go straight to auction, meaning these are serially produced watches like, you know, some of these, you know, Patek Philippe Nautiluses. These are not one of a kind watches, but retail ones that are supposed to be sold as brand new uh, in a store are going to auction. That's one flavor, and we all agree that that's bad. Another flavor that I think we also agree is bad is watches which are being specifically made, one of a kind watches for auction. It's just a gimmick. It's not really seen as being fair. As Sylvan said, you have to fight for it, which which doesn't make it a fun experience. And it's sort of another technique to bait collectors into behavior to get them to spend more than they want. And again, collectors don't win. Really, the auction houses do. So, I mean, we could go on and on about this, but it seems like we're in broad agreement. And I think the community is moving that way. There's still a lot of money and, and, and attraction here. Like if you want to sell a watch, I think sometimes there's this belief that going to an auction house is the way to make a lot of money doing it. And I'm not always sure that that's true. It definitely, some people are. These companies are notoriously tight-lipped about exactly how their money's being spent. For years and years, there was this record-setting watch, some expensive Patek Philippe, I think it was a super complication. And it was never actually paid for. So on the record, it was said it was worth some huge amount of money, but the reality is nobody ever paid for it. So hmm. the market, is this high amount of money, it was like $11 million, but nobody actually ever paid for it. You know, and that's such unethical behavior. And I, I, I think that more of the stories need to come out 
And people also probably need to have a, a better tools on uh, where to sell their watches predictably. Uh, you know, I always think eBay's for that, but you know, not everyone uh, finds that to be as easy as possible. I, I was going to move on, but it, what you've said just got me thinking. Is there a power in the auction houses that the rest of the watch world, like the, the general buyer and watch enthusiast, doesn't appreciate? Because you don't often hear the auction houses being taken to task by the media who should be commenting on them. Is there a bit too much of a synergistic relationship sometimes between media, auction houses, everyone scratching each other back so they don't say the unsayable, they don't call out the bad behavior? Look, when you're in watch media, you need to sort of massage every relationship possible because you don't know who's going to be client, who's going to be advertiser, who you're going to need. And it tends to be bad business to attack people that sell watches because people that sell watches make likely advertisers. Watch auction houses are a blend. They're not exactly retailers or a slightly different type of animal. But I think for the most part, media wants to stay in their good side. Watch auction houses, by definition, know how to manipulate behavior. That's essentially what they're doing. And they know yeah. how to do that with media as well. So I actually think they make up a very small amount of, of advertising in general. We know that they send a lot of press releases out, but they auction houses don't tend and to advertise very much, at least not in watch media. So I think that there's sort of a very strange relationship. It's not very arm's length distance. I think media would like to do more business with auction houses. They don't. And I think that media is just in general worried about attacking, I'll call it the value proposition. And this goes to the sort of a, an, an interesting phenomenon luxury. It's not just watches that it's like we're afraid to question the price. As though we question the price, people are going to be like, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't spend this amount. And we have this sort of like tiptoeing around the discussion of price and cost and, and things like that in the world of luxury that is not going to completely go away, but it's less and less a thing right now. And this discussion, this transparency around value is very threatening for a lot of people. And so I think that the sort of notion of attacking auction houses for their practices is related to this larger concern about attacking the value proposition, because everyone's afraid that suddenly the world would wake up and realize that spending all this money on watches is insane. And in a way it is, but I don't think that's going to mean we're going to stop doing it because these things bring us joy and, and they, they actually are quite expensive to make. Sylvan will attest to that. David, we touched on your article already. I encourage everyone to go and read it. This is your wrist time review of the Rolex Daytona. You present five ways that the Rolex Daytona is better than you thought and five ways that it's worse than you thought. We don't have time to go through all five. So pick as your number one reason why it's better and your number one reason why it's worse. It's better because it's beautifully proportionate in real life. You see all these bloated images and exaggerated images of the text looking huge on video and an image uh, on photography. And you look at it in real life and it's it's not a tiny watch, but it's it's a relatively small watch and it's very nicely proportioned in, in every detail. So I, I will give it that. I think it's it looks really fantastic on the wrist. And it's one of those few steel bracelet watches that I find comfortable even when I wear it over like you know three with three layers of clothing and like winter coats and whatever and i have some other watches in here and you know wear sometimes during the winter and i feel like i'm always reaching there i always have to adjust it and that's just not the case even though the oyster bracelet looks so freaking simple it's it's outrageous and yet it is still very comfortable so so that's probably proportions and wearing comfort are two of the best things of the daytona and the worst thing i think which is, is potentially the most ridiculous about it is that it's it, it can damage itself 
it's so fragile that even like the clasp of the of the oyster lock clasp as you fold it back to, to take the watch off it wears onto the center link of the bracelet and even within a few weeks of, of wear it it already shows wear on the on the center link and I bring the analogy that this is like buying a new Audi and having the door just rub onto the frame and destroy itself just from regular use. You look at something that's made to be so robust and maintain its you know, beauty and whatever in all kinds of circumstances and all this nonsense. Oh, that, here's what it says on the website. Maintains its beauty even in the harshest environments and yet it can uh, you know, damage itself. So that's probably the weakest link that the watch is beautiful when it's new and very quickly it shows uh, signs of wear. And I feel like Rolex should be way beyond working with steel at this point and they should be using ceramic and titanium. Sylvan, do you want to get your disclaimer in now yes yeah yes so i think people know it by now so <laughs> i take my bright leg cam off and i talk only from my personal perspective as a watch enthusiast can, can i bounce back on the on the daytona opinion of, of absolutely that? Please. I because i i relate quite a bit to to his statement me working at Breitling, I received the same kind of comments for all dive watches as well. What I can note is, let's not forget, all these pieces, whether it is a Breitling Super Ocean, a Daytona, what have you, have been first and foremost developed to be tool watches in the beginning. And only very recently in their history, the last 5-10 years, they became these icon status jewelry objects. Nobody any longer race with a Daytona on the wrist or dives with a, with a Super Ocean or, I mean, uh, the vast majority of people don't. And therefore, these projects, these objects became jewelry objects, although they were not meant to be. And this is really where the clash comes. We as manufacturers use steel because these are good materials in terms of finishing, strength, all these things, but they were never meant to become jewelry objects otherwise we would have treated like jewelry and that would have been a lot of stones that you actually can't scratch mm -hmm. so, so i find it very and i think that's where your frustration comes from david the fact that you, you'd like it to last forever and stay as bright as it was out of <laughs> the box although by nature these watches are more meant to to end full of scratches mm. uh, i'm not worried about scratches or anything like that i you know i'm, I'm not saying it has to be pristine but what i am saying is that it should not damage itself or wear on itself for one and for two these watches are intended to be worn for decades and uh, even within a month or two it looks really genuinely quite worn and and does not maintain its beauty mm -hmm. uh, especially 904l and the way Rolex treats it when it's polished I, I think i think there should be a solution and it, it didn't happen yesterday that these watches started to gain luxury pricing I, you know it's it's different to look at something as a pro prosumer product you know when it's like a professional consumer product like some of the things are like a nikon camera like or, or whatever else but here these are priced as luxury items and i think it's a beauty comes as a part of, of the attraction and some other brands have figured out how to work with ceramic for example to make it look really nice by brushing it and polishing it and doing all kinds of crazy things to it and it still looks great and i understand that you know it's a it's a not as universal in its appeal as steel but still it maintains its beauty uh, you know forever basically and i think there should be somewhere uh, some sort of a middle ground between looking like a 10 year old watch in two weeks or two months at most and looking beautiful forever and, and brand new forever that, that's my point but i understand uh, yours still absolutely coming back to your to your link to the cars for example race cars or race bikes tend to damage themselves as well if you, if you get a brand new ferrari i will talk to bikes because that's what i know the most 
the race bikes I had have the same syndrome. You, you Just by riding them, you don't crash, you don't do anything. Because of rock projections and anything, they will damage themselves just by being ridden uh, on a normal right. case. Because they have been made to the sinus tolerances and the, using the best materials. And the, mm-hmm. I hear your point about ceramic. We have not seen yet any 50 years old ceramic piece going to auction. Because in my opinion, no, but they won't <laughs> last. That's my problem with this. Especially, I like ceramic a lot because, as you said, you can scratch it. It has probably more of a jewelry feeling. The problem is they won't last for, for 50 years. The, the chance of you wearing a ceramic piece for 50 years straight is very, very low because you will drop it at some point and then it will explode in pieces. Hmm. Really? Have you had ceramic pieces explode? Because I, I, I dinged an Hublot ceramic watch into a lamp post some years ago. I was just I was just walking on the street. Was this a Hublot you owned or a Hublot that was on a press release? It was a loner and um, I was just walking around in the city and I could hear this like really loud like ding. So you did it on purpose or no? No, no, I didn't. I was just <laughs> I was just being clumsy. How strong is this Hublot? It was a black Hublot and it was a black lamp post. And I looked down on my wrist and it has this little black pieces of of something and i th- i thought yeah, okay this is it <laughs> and and then it actually was the paint that wore off of the lamppost and i could just brush it off and i still have this image in my mind of the of the watch and with these little black pieces on it not a single scratch on it and just while we are on this topic ublu then sent me their magic gold watch and i watched some videos about beaver just shouting that it cannot be scratched and i was like okay and uh, i took a key and we lamp post time yeah yes exactly <laughs> and we actually have a video on a blog to watch instagram where i go at it with a key on the bezel and i genuinely try and scratch it very hard and nothing and then two days later i see a scratch on it and uh, uh okay <laughs> like that's a problem and i reach out and i could actually use a rubber that you use to uh, remove like pencil and from ceramic uh, you, you can remove scratches by using rubber i've done this uh, actually a few times because what happens is that ceramic is so hard that something else rubs or wears onto it and what you're doing is you're removing that material that wore onto ceramic but ceramic itself is not scratched unless you fall over in a diamond mine or something like that i, I hear your point with regards to uh, fragility for ceramic but if i google you know like broken ceramic or whatever i don't see that many I- issues still and over the last five years you know when those pictures about the panerai and an omega started circulating i just don't see tens let alone hundreds of cases where people are complaining that their ceramic watches uh, are, are broken well, if you have a picture of a broken ceramic watch, then do email it to us. Yes. Or just a broken Hungarian lamppost. Yeah. If you are working in the roads department somewhere <laughs> in Hungary and you're like, how come all of our lampposts are being destroyed? Invoice me. And it may well be David's fault. Invoice David. I got to talk about the Daytona though. Okay, go on then. It's just about the category. It's 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 neither here nor there about the Daytona itself. The watch is fine. It's not perfect. We've established that. But in the internet era, there's this sort of thing that some people, I, I think it's funny, they call it the Jesus watch. And it's like some type of watch that you, you stand in <laughs> awe of. And most people have never seen it. But the idea is like, oh, you have one of those. And there's this Jesus. anticipation, expectation. These watches are like perfect. When in reality, they're just watches. They have ups and downs, but there's this sort of like myth. They become legends. And so the expectations around them are so insanely high that when they don't live up to being absolutely perfect and flawless, like the gods of watches are supposed to be, we're all so let down. And again, it's because of this weird sort of like hype conversation, which happens around a certain set of models, you know, like the ungodly 
gettable Daytona. Oh my God, you got one. And then there's this insane expectation. So I do think that there's a lot of that that happens, which is why it's actually dangerous, in my opinion, to own some of the watches where there's all that hype around because like you're inevitably going to become let down in, in some ways. Other ways, it's great. But in some ways, you're going to be let down because they're only watches. Yeah, everybody knows that the Jesus watch the Speedmaster because it's poor water resistance means it has to be walked on water. <laughs> We have a watch designer, a creative director on the show. Uh, we can't tell you who he works for now because he's disowned them. But part two of our blog to watch partnership, is that the way to describe it, with Raymond Vale? We're kind of using our reach to help it's design a, a watch. It's a, it's a campaign we're doing together. We came up with this a while ago. The idea is to, in a sense, have a... A, a crowd participation watch design and one sort of attempt at making that happen through a series of choices that narrow down finally into a watch that you can buy and uh, we're on phase two right now so I, I think that it's it should be said that this is a, an experimental thing with good intentions but the idea is that this is probably a better way of getting a cool watch made than some of the other ways that they use. There was a kind of choice of musical genres. Raymond Vale obviously have a, a very large, significant tie into the world of music. The winner was New Wave Synth, probably because I voted like 23 times or yeah, something. Yeah, a bunch of different computers and everything. bunch of different computers. <laughs> I'll be honest, I thought this would be a disaster. I thought we give them New Wave Synth or any of the choices and we get three watches that just looked like all the other watches. But actually, I'm really impressed with what they've come up with. They've come up with three sort of designs. One is the Ravenvale cassette player. One is the Ravenvale mix board. And then the Ravenvale bubble curve. I have to say, I, I, I don't think I'm signed up in such a way that means I can't, you know, pitch for my favourite. But sure, I vote the cassette like. player. Okay. I vote the cassette player. I think that will be pretty cool. Fits in with the zeitgeist. But I want to hear what our creative director thinks of all of this. What's your thought about engaging the public in designing your watch? So on, on, on that question, I think it can bite you both ways. And maybe I'm a bit biased here because I'm, I'm my profession is concerned. But I, I think it's a cool exercise to do, but I'm not sure if on the long run you want an external source to direct your strategy and direct what you become. I, I like the idea of selling watches as jewelry objects, a bit of a mind game. So you have to play the seduction game. And if I have to compare, compare it to a love relationship, for example, I, I don't ask my wife, Oh, honey, how do you want me to dress tomorrow? No, I, I make my own choice and I try to, to seduce her every day. But because as soon as I start asking, then all of a sudden, you know, it's like me begging. You know what I mean? And, and in the and in the relationship, uh, I mean, that's not how I play it, at least. But I mean, it's a very personal take. Coming back to the design, uh, I thought it was three very different hypotheses that have been formulated, which were very different and interesting. I personally voted for the cassette player as well. And I was impressed to, to see that the majority voted for the cassette player as well. It, it shows the, the will of, of the watch community in general to go back to daring designs in general. And, and, and to me, this is a good sign for the future of maybe we will enter back an era where design will matter more than it used to do. I think right now and then the 20 years before the brand was more important than the product itself. And maybe the, the pendulum would switch again and we will go back to, and we've seen it, for example, with another recent release, the Gong Watch from Christopher Ward, for example. 
not even wearing a, a name on the dial and people were after the design and the brand was a consequence of the design. Uh, so hopefully you can achieve the same success with this project. I wish you guys too. Uh, and I'm looking forward. Thank you, Sylvain. That's, that's very good of you to say. And I want to explain a little bit more of the background. It, it is not to replace the way that watches are made. People like Sylvain are necessary and important for most of the watches that come out. But we agree that once in a while you can do these exercises that are interesting. And more important than just releasing the best possible watch to, to sell in the market, I think all these watches could do well in the market, is what, what you can learn. One of the things that I wanted to learn from this, and, and why I designed it this way, is what actually people think about Raymond Vial. I'm not really think, sure I know. I know what I think about it. I know what they think about the brand, but I don't really have a way of knowing what the average person thinks about the brand. Going through an exercise like this can teach anyone paying attention what sentiments are about the brand through how people act. Is it going to tell you everything? No, but it's a lot more than nothing. And I think that's very important for a brand because brands like Raymond Vile, who are mature but also sort of need to innovate a little bit, can have difficulty knowing what the consumer expects of them and thus what to do. And I think this is a very good way of learning exactly what the vocal community does want from you and does think about you. And the watch that people tell Raymond Wilde to make, I think is very instructive in what people think and expect from the brand. I think most brands would benefit from that. I know that Raymond Vile will and, and, and already has benefited from it and, and, and learned a lot. So I see this as being one of those very ambitious, you know, kind of projects that helps the brand develop as well as make a cool watch and allows the community to have a participation. So I'm glad you guys are picking up on some of the nuances here, but I don't want anyone to think that like this is supposed to replace traditional watch design practices. It's a brave initiative. I, I like it. And I think also the fact that you guys come from the outside into a company, you become enablers to turn the creative knob uh, slightly higher than, than what it could be done in a traditional process. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it. I think it's very interesting. It's daring, it's modern, it's, it's sexy. And I was very impressed to see people voting for the cassette player in, in, in majority. And I told them, I said, this is going to mean you have to make something new with a new case and a new that. And they agreed to that. They understood it. And I think that was very important that I made that clear because you're right, this could have gone in a really boring direction mm -hmm. if they hadn't actually been creative. In last week's show, you were mentioning about the collab between cars and watches and watches that had been produced in conjunction with car companies. However, one that slipped your minds might have been the other way around, a car company and a watch company doing a car collab with the smart car. Swatch Mercedes Art, as it stands for, and that has been fairly successful with the number of units produced over the years now. Last week's show this week, some quick audio from Doing Time Scotland. So we missed out an obvious contender for the Car Watch collab of the cheap end, which was the smart car, the Swatch Mercedes Art. So Doing Time Scotland has put us in our place. Anything else spring to mind uh, now that you've had a week to think about it, about automotive collaborations? Sylvan, have you got a favourite automotive watch collaboration? For me personally, you would have to come down to Porsche Designs. I, I think they, they had uh, a nice Austrian gesture on, on watchmaking, very minimalist and yet very technical. I think it was a nice blend, although I, I like a bit of watchmaking substance in these products. But nonetheless, if I had to pick... Uh, 
a car watch, so to speak. So that would be my, my choice. My choice. Now we did also say uh, a few episodes ago that when we next had you on, we would ask you about the Tourbillon Premier B21. So we're asking you to put your Breitling hat back on, albeit briefly. We discussed on the show as to what the motivation was for Breitling to produce a watch with a, whether you call it a complication or not, it's certainly a high-end finish movement, etc. And this was in the same week that Christopher Ward did the Bel Canto, and we posited the idea that this is as much about the brands just showing what they're capable of to raise the game and feed it down to the other watch ranges below that the ADs are like, no, give us something that's the Halo product. So tell us from the inside, if you like, what was the motivation? So Breitling is by definition a generalistic brand. Uh, we offer different flavors, different price points. The Halo products for me, considering Breitling, are more... Super Ocean Heritage, Navitimer, Aerospace, Super Ocean 3, the new one. These are the, the core of our competence when it, when it comes to watchmaking. Nonetheless, we want to stay out of the comfort zone. And for example, this premier tourbillon is on the far end of the creative spectrum for us. This is us stretching our proposal to, to really the extent of what, of what we can do. So we are in the premier collection. This is the pure elegance from the 40s, 50s. And we go with a high-end complication in a Breitling way, which can be very surprising. This is not, the once again, the core competence in Breitling. Nonetheless, we want to try to dare to try new things. So this proposal, this product is a different proposal to the classic tourbillons you can find. It's a movement made with La Joux Perret very high-end manufacturer movement maker and this movement alone packs a lot of bang for buck i should say you have 55 hour power reserve it's a cost movement chronograph column wheel combined with a tourbillon so it's a heavy heater in terms of watchmaking substance uh, to pack all this in one movement that is probably one of the largest we use 34 millimeter in diameter packed in a precious metal 42 millimeter case, we used glass box top bottom, and it's a watch that I recommend to see in reality because Breitling, we do not cheat on the numbers, unlike some of our colleagues that I won't name, but so it says on paper, oh, it's 15 millimeters thick. Yes, it is from top to bottom on the sapphire glasses. Now, if you wear it on your wrist, it feels like a 10 mil high watch simply because we use these two glass box uh, on top bottom. So even if you don't have any mean to buy it, just for the curiosity of seeing so much watchmaking substance in a relatively small watch packed in a dress frame, I think it would be nice just go in a Breitling boutique and check them out. They are heavy pieces uh, that shines quite well. You have a massive gold rotor. And so it's Breitling venturing into classic, traditional, yet high-end horology. So we we encourage you all to go into your looking Breitling yeah. boutique and say that Sylvain sent them and you just like to try on the really expensive yes. watch, but you have no intention yes. of buying it. Ask them for their most massive gold rotor. <laughs> yeah, because it's a big movement. You, you, need, you need a lot of torque. To get this one moving chronograph with tourbillon so so we have a, a, a big barrel that gives a lot of torque to the movement and therefore you need that very heavy gold rotor it's a massive 22 carats so that's 100 percent gold something we could not use on a case for example it would be way too soft 
Good week, bad week. So, bad week for those of us that like to double wrist watches, as James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom, uh, it turns out actually double wrist with a Breitling, it would appear as well, and a smart watch. So, yeah, that's put me right off wearing two watches. Also, Maybe it was a bad week. Maybe it was a good week. Did you see this Harry Kane story? No, I don't even know why I'm mentioning footballers to the three of you. This is pointless. Sylvan doesn't have a television and the other two of you don't care. But did anybody see the story because of everything that's happening in Qatar and the suppression of various human rights that uh, Harry Kane decided that the way to show his support because he wasn't allowed to wear any rainbow attire on his strip was to wear a rainbow Daytona. So good move or completely and utterly tone deaf? Is there any circumstances to which wearing a Rolex Daytona should be used as some sort of protest symbol? Can you use a Rolex to protest? No, it's a happiness device. It it would be like protesting with birthday cake. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually probably the best line I've heard about this story. (laughs) Effectively, Harry Kane protested with birthday cake. It does bring us on to football watches. I'm going to quickly jump across to some audio. So have a listen to this. Hey everyone, Mike Razak here to talk about the Carl F. Bucher Monero Central Chrono. This is a new watch from the brand offering a centrally mounted minutes display for the chronograph as well as a soccer timer track, which is a nod to the brand's partnership with the Swiss Football Association. However, this is not an entirely new watch, as the brand did have a centrally mounted minutes display chronograph all the way back in 2011. The soccer timer, however, is new. This is limited to 100 pieces, but do we hope it's going to be expanded to a wider offering? What do you think? That was Carl F. Bucherer have launched a Monero Center counter. A football timer. Again, don't really know why I'm speaking to you three about this. Because do, do the three of you know how long a football match actually even lasts? Uh, isn't half of it 45 minutes? Yeah, well, they're well done. David, how 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 long can extra time normally go for? Wow, I have no idea. <laughs> Two times something, 30 minutes or something. I don't know. I don't know. It's too so, long for me. Extra time? Yeah. So more than the 90 minutes? No. Yeah, 50 minutes aside. So 15? 50 minutes aside. So this is this is a this is a football timer watch from Carl F. Busher. I actually think this is particularly attractive. Anybody have any strong opinions about uh, this Monero chronograph? It's a center second counter. I mean, bless them for making all these like theme things. Like they're trying to make the chronograph useful. I think that's what's interesting. The chronograph, Mm. visually speaking, is the most popular Uh complication. If you look at beyond three hand watches, chronographs do better than than GMTs and then somewhere lower is perpetual count. Chronographs do great, but almost nobody has any practical use for a mechanical chronograph. Like there are things you can do, but it's like no one ever, some people play with it. People get excited. They're like, oh, I get to use it, but no one does because it's so freaking impractical, (laughs) hard to read. You never remember. There's ways of fixing it maybe but i just think it's hilarious how the brands bless them they keep trying to do it but like no one's gonna be like finally i'm gonna track my soccer match when like the time like you said is right there in the tv like it serves no freaking purpose i wish it did but it's nothing useless <laughs> my, my question is Sylvan, see when chronographs come back in for service can you tell 
whether they've actually ever been used. Like, I mean, I, I don't know if the, they leave some sort of track. You know, if a chronograph has been regularly used, oh, yeah. can you tell when you open up the watch after 10 years, this is a chronograph that's been used versus, yeah, the watch needs a service, but this chronograph has never actually been used. Oh, yes, you can, you can very, very quickly tell as a watchmaker what type of owner you have for example on the barrel and on the bearings of the auto you can even tell if that person is very dynamic or, or hmm. if it's someone very quiet right okay. that's the first thing we have watches that come back for being extra used if, if you have someone i don't know doing uh, cycling in the mountains on gravel roads all day to go to work and come back with the same watch i can guarantee you the bearings <laughs> will be smashed just because it, it's it use scenarios that is way beyond what we can achieve. On the on the other spectrum, you have people that are very quiet, probably who have office jobs, and the hand stays uh, in the hub position for too long. And and some people even complain. They say, "Oh, but my watch is not it's an automatic, and yet it, it dies." I'm like, "Well, if you don't move your hand, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can't fight physics here." But coming back to the chronograph, of course, when you start, stop, reset, all the push and all the cams inside the watch will leave some marks on each other. And if you activate, stop, and reset your chronograph 10,000 times, these cams and these uh, column wheels will show and these hammers will show some sign of, of wear and tear a lot more than if you have never used it. And if you have never used it, not only the, the parts will be intact, but the oil will dry. That's also something at right. some point, if you leave a watch 30 years without functioning, as good as are the synthetic oils that we use, oils need a, a little bit of movement. It's like a, a collection of classic cars. You need to start them uh, once in a while and then just drive 20 kilometers, put them back in place. If you have a collection of a ton of watches, I recommend you guys once a month or... I mean, that's probably too extreme, but once every six months, wind it up, wear it a couple of days, put it back in the drawer, activate all the functions, and that will move the oil in your movement, will move the bearings and avoid any mechanical components kind of freezing with each other. So on that basis that you can tell, do you have a feeling for just what percentage of chronograph watches are ever being used anything like on a regular basis my guess is like two percent of chronograph watches show any sign of wear on the chronograph when it comes to people sending watches to have components being replaced for being actually used like you said this is two percent uh -huh. now people that actually use their chronograph once in a while this is 90 percent because everybody who buys one likes to play with it once in a while just just hey just to play with it playing is not using playing is yes, not using and, and then being being <laughs> rightling we are very well placed to talk about chronographs this is probably one of the strongest pillars in terms of brand definition for brightling the chronograph and and we have clients that are watch terrorist when it comes to this uh, they would test their watch I, we have clients that have high speed cameras amplitude testers at home yeah and and they send me pictures oh you know i started my chronograph blah 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 maybe i should get the watch uh, regulated because i have a slightly too high drop of amplitude when i when i have my, my chronograph running and i'm like oh wow <laughs> <laughs> and we have a lot of engineers, doctors, scientific minds that buy Breitling watches because they know how much engineering goes into them. 
So of course we try our best to. This is why we cost all our PCs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, he just sends them an endurance pro, and they're happy. Yeah, exactly. Just send them a digital watch. <laughs> Batteries. It's the future. So some bad weeks there for double wristing and the Rolex Daytona Stroke Hurricane. Good week for watch film fans. Here's a quick bit of audio about the Murph. Hey everybody, Sean Lorenzen here to give you a quick primer on the new 38mm Hamilton Khaki Field Murph. When Interstellar, the Christopher Nolan film, first came out in 2014, everyone in the watch community immediately fell in love with this unique Hamilton design that one of the characters, Murph, wore throughout the movie. It took Hamilton until 2019 to officially release that watch to the public. And when they did, it was a 42mm case. It wore slightly large. And as soon as the community saw that, they were clamoring for a smaller version. And here at the end of 2022, Hamilton has answered those prayers with a 38 millimeter variant. It's a simpler dial without the Morse code detailing that the 42 millimeter variant had that the movie watch didn't. On top of that, you're getting a more vintage, compact look, uh, along with the same level of finishing and, and style that you would get on the larger Murph. Is the Murph one of your favorite film watches? Is there another movie watch in the past few years that you feel outshines it? Does it live up to the hype? What do you guys think? I don't know how I feel about this because I actually prefer the original one, the 42mm, 38mm, that's not a watch, that's like a, that's, that's like a ring. But the original 42mm is my preference. But the question was, what do you think of this and do you have any favourite film watches? I have to say, as a film watch, the Hamilton Murphy is one of my favourites. I think it just, when it came out, the original one absolutely hit the zeitgeist of movie watches of collectability of limited editions all the rest of it <laughs> although it was only a limited edition box any any preferences gents david favorite film watches i i really like the uh, the ripley psycho i think that's that's one of the coolest props and and the fact that it was as far as i know designed to be a watch and then the design just happens to fit into a freaking alien movie perfectly. I think it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Now, I don't know whether I should ask Sylvain because he's not got a television. No, no, but uh, I still have, I don't, I don't have a television. It doesn't mean I don't have access to movies. Huh? I'm not, li- <laughs> don't get me wrong. But uh, for example, one, one that comes to mind for me would be Scarface, where he wears one of these, uh-huh. I think it was a delirium. Watch, he was the time where a watchmaker used to make super seen gold watches using quartz movements and you have Al Pacino wearing this very exuberant and flamboyant gold watch and it goes very well into the, the gangster icon figure of it so it complemented very well the, the whole painting of this movie so Scarface for me is the pick and Ariel based in LA you must have lunched with Hamilton at some stage at one of these movie things I can tell you the backstory of the Murph thing a little bit yeah go for it so I was there right after this sort of thing came out and I saw the actual prop there's actually an article on the blog to watch of the actual prop that's the actual Murph from the interstellar movie and it plays a central role in the movie and at the time it was just a movie prop 
And I immediately said to Sylvan Dalla, who is now at Tissot, he was then at Hamilton. I was like, Sylvan, you know, you should probably go ahead and make this watch, like produce one. He's like, yeah, yeah, maybe we'll think about that. There's some people that are saying it. They weren't really sure. And then they decided to do it. And then Hamilton had the Murph, which was the 42 millimeter wide version, which I like as well. It had no date, which most of them had a date and had that kind of cool vintage look. The producers of the movie were the ones that told Hamilton what they wanted to look like. So it was actually designed, if you will, uh, by by Christopher Nolan's prop team, which was cool. And uh-huh. and it did well. And then and it continues to do well. And, and what is a company that's a risk-averse conservative company like, you know, the Swatch Group brand Hamilton going to do? They'd be like, oh, let's make another size, which we know is an in-demand size of the same exact thing. You know, so that's really what it is. It's a continuation of it. Does it really matter that it's smaller? I mean, it's just another size. There's people that will not wear 42 because it's too big, but 38's fine and vice versa. So, you know, we had the conversation a couple of weeks ago about an article I wrote about how watches should come in more sizes. And this is a perfect example of it. Breitling, of course, is a, a great example of a company that makes multiple sizes of the same thing. So I think this is fine. I think that this is a good move and it is a, one of the great stories, a very real authentic story because it was a prop part of the film and story. And again, there's so many watches and films, but one that comes to mind that was mostly shot in LA was They Live uh, from the 80s John Carpenter one and Rolex presidents were gadget watches for the aliens. And one of the things that you could do with it is open up a portal, like a teleportation portal. (laughs) So, uh, you know, you think of like the James Bond gadget watches and like they got nothing on open up a portal and letting you jump out of there and go to your spaceship or whatever. And it could do other things as well. And it was a Rolex president. So there was a cool scene from the movie where they did in their sort of cheesy 80s graphics like kind of looked like there was lightning on the dial <laughs> where it was sort of entering into the portal mode. And it was such a cool thing that would be so cool to replicate. I don't know, in a smartwatch or something like that. But that's just one that comes to mind of one of those great watch integrations uh, into movies from that era. Good, good. Well, let's talk about another watch that, well, it might have a bit of a movie link. Let you decide. Hey everyone, Ripley Sellers here. To celebrate the 60th anniversary of the James Bond film franchise, Omega has released a duo of Seamaster Divers. Now the first one's in stainless steel with a blue wave dial that's kind of inspired by the original Omega that James Bond wore during the 1990s films. The other, an 18 karat white canopus gold with a colored diamond bezel that fades from green to an orange cognac brown color and that's inspired by the colors of the Jamaican flag. Stainless steel one costs $7,600. You go for the rainbow diamond one, you're looking about $140,000, but you flip both of them over and what you get is a case back animation that quite literally plays out the intro of the James Bond film with the spiral gun barrel motif and someone moving around in it. Uh, What I want to know is which one gets your pick. For me, it's got to be the white gold one with the crazy diamond bezel. Okay, so that was Ripley introducing the new Omega Seamaster Diver 300 meters, 60 years of James Bond watches. And there is only one person that I can go to to comment on this because there is a rainbow bezel diamond jewelry blingy thing going on here. So David, you are the man. Are you wearing the new Omega with the encrusted bezel? Not yet. And it pains me to say that. I think it's just (laughs) 
a freaking cool watch even though it's a little bit late to the to the to the jump set party but yeah i think it, it's a, it's a great looking watch i don't think we'll have one in the budapest boutique anytime soon though somebody did make a comment i don't i think it was on the blog to watch feed it was somebody called Along Came a Renegade. Lots of underscores, so you could associate with them, David. Absolutely. Commenting that if the gems had been made of red on the left and shades of blue on the right, then that would have been more appropriate because it obviously would have been a callback to the Nintendo game for the health of that original shoot 'em up that was so popular back in the day. What did we actually reckon to the watch itself? Other than the gem set, where I was pretty much, well, it's just another it's just another Omega release that looks the same as all the other Omega releases with a wee spinny thing on the back. If it was red and blue, wouldn't would it not have been a Pepsi anyway? So maybe that's why they avoided it. Oh, yeah. Yes, that's a good point. They would have been accused of copying. It's not like Omega have ever copied anybody. Yeah. What, what do we think, gentlemen, of this particular release is it just a kind of yeah it's 60th anniversary of james bond we've got to do something we've paid all this money for the rights so we're going to do something about it <laughs> but you're right omega has all these like obligations and they feel that the only thing they can do is come out with a new watch that's the funny thing they do have to celebrate it but i think they don't always need to just come out with a new watch it's like it's like they have one play it's like okay guys <laughs> how about we come out with a limited edition watch and have a party and everyone's like what a brilliant idea like i'm just saying there's other things they can do to recognize it and there's something to be said about having some promotion with the existing watches you have like make a cool movie or some film or something and use one of the watches that has already existed that you can still buy maybe that would be great rather than let's just keep making more so i think it's kind of funny how that's the sort of the sort of stuck on that strategy watch company makes watch shock <laughs> yeah <laughs> these bejeweled sports watches are nothing new i remember shooting very elaborate platinum precious stone set planet ocean watches years ago uh, omega has, has sort of done these for a long time not always publicized them this is one of the rare ones i think they're sort of publicizing but they may have not done one in a while so it's not that innovative uh, again it's sort of like hey you just got invited to James Bond's house for a birthday. You got to bring a gift, Omega. What's it going to be? And again, they're all like, let's make watches. Like, you know, so it's it's amusing and charming. But I, I'd like to think there's more strategies for a really, you know, global international brand like Omega to celebrate these amazing integrations that it has. It does feel like that somebody should be doing that meme. You know the meme whereby they're all sitting around a table and then there's one of the guys gets thrown out of the window <laughs> for suggesting something else. It feels like that sort of thing should occur. Somebody suggested, no, let's let's not make a watch. Right, that's it. You're out, mate. Sylvan, other than making watches, how should watch brands celebrate things? Uh, one interesting way, even if, for example, we, we had the case very recently with the Scott Carpenter Cosmonaut edition we did with Breitling, and it's a discussion we had internally. Uh, in our case, we didn't have a Cosmonaut in the portfolio, which is why we revived it, but we also tried to to put a lot of emphasis into the story itself. So for all the people that joined the event, it was actually quite little about the watch, but more about the event and the historical process that went through. We had the Carpenter family, we had the, the Breitling, Gregory Breitling himself explaining how it happened back then. And, and we put a lot of emphasis on what we actually celebrate more than the watch we use as a vector to celebrate. So maybe in that case, uh, celebrating cinema and James Bond and then the different 
the movies and episodes and everything can can also be very nice to and and as a watch brand you you put the spotlight on the person you are celebrating more than the product you came up with so that can be interesting for, for us we had tremendous feedback for the the cosmonaut edition i remember people were very touched that we brought back the original watch that fell down into the sea and etc so i think it was very touching but uh, number wise it's less efficient than than just coming up with products that i should also mention so it's probably more my, my poetic side that speaks here well maybe the problem is they killed off james bond in the last movie if that's not a spoiler alert spoiler alert they killed james bond in the last film <laughs> he'll be back like superman so maybe the problem was they couldn't actually have him there was nobody to tell a story about because they killed the main character but there we go so on that bombshell as somebody on a different show likes to say that is us for this week so thank you savan thank you david thank you ariel gentlemen where can we find you on the internet i'll actually hold it aside because savan and david you have this kind of underscore loving thing going on don't no, you i i joined the dark side <laughs> so now i am underscore less what? Oh. you can find me at you, yeah listen to that you can find me at berneron as simple as that you know my my family name b-e-r-n-e-r-o-n berneron at berneron there you go so horological hammer is no more <laughs> it still does exist but uh, it was not meant to be said so sorry david you're on your own david's limping on with his underscore tell us where they can find you david type into the search bar like an underscore and you will find me for sure uh i own it now it auto completes now it's ab2w underscore david don't worry elon musk will soon take over instagram and get rid of the underscore for no particularly obvious reason ariel where can we find you well my latest articles are on blog to watch.com in addition to this show i do the superlative podcast on instagram i am ariel to watch and i i don't know uh do i need to do more stuff and maybe more podcasts more writing we'll see there's clearly a gaping hole in the world of watch podcast that we need another one so yeah watch this space anyway you can <laughs> you can find me at rick tiktok you can email the show podcast at a blog to watch.com thank you all for joining us tune in again next week bye bye thank you guys bye everyone bye everyone